listeners, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Welcome back to our regular programming of Below the Radar. We hope you enjoyed our Voices of the Street miniseries in partnership with Megaphone Magazine over the last six weeks. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Am Johal, is joined by author and organizer Adrian Marie Brown. Adrian is the recipient of the 2022 Jack P. Blaney Award for Dialogue from SFU Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue and sat down with Below the Radar during her visit to campus. Adrian and Am discuss community organization, solidarity, and the medicine of imagination in storytelling. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Really delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a very special guest, Adrian Marie Brown is with us. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really great to be able to speak with you. You're going to be later this afternoon uh, getting the Jack P. Blaney Award here at Simon Fraser University. And I'll ask you a bit about that later, but maybe I usually start with the question for our audience who might not be familiar with your work, if you could introduce yourself a little bit. So my name is Adrian Marie Brown. I am a writer who lives in Durham, North Carolina in the U.S. And I have been a part of movement, social justice movement and movement transformation for the past 25 years. So a lot of the writing that I do is particularly interested in telling the story of those who changed the world and uplifting the lessons that I've learned from trying to hold that work. And a lot of that is the dialogue work. So I think that's that's where the award is coming from for me. I'm also a podcaster and an artist and a proud auntie. Adrian, I'm wondering, I'm always interested in people's stories about how they got involved in activism in the, in the first place. And yeah. there's so many ways that people enter into the world of community organizing, politics, social change, and all of yeah. that. And I wonder if you can share you know, how, how you first got involved or the things that affected you in, in a way that were called into this work. Very early in my life, I already had a sense of questioning and critical thinking. And I was born to an interracial relationship of people who had fallen in love in the deep South. And so I think my parents were always the kind of people who were like, I know that's what people say we're supposed to do, but what actually feels right to our hearts, what feels right to our spirits. So that was in me early. And one of the major politicizing events for me, I went to Columbia University. And while I was there, I got involved in student organizing, which was awesome. But I think a lot of people do student organizing and then they go on to other things. And for me, while I was there, Amadou Diallo was murdered by the police. Uh, He was shot 41 times. He was unarmed. And something about that clicked in my spirit. You know, I was like, that that feels so wrong to me that that's possible and that there's no consequence for it. And then the attacks of 9-11 happened and right is basically right after I, you know, I graduated and or didn't quite graduate, but I stopped going to school and was working and 9-11 happened. And then I saw how quickly my country galvanized to go to war. And I think those two events really solidified for me that we were living inside of these systems of oppression and that if we didn't resist them and envision something else, then we would all die. <laughs> like, it just felt very clear to me. It's like, oh, it's like, if we keep fighting and fighting and dividing and dividing, there's only one path that that leads to, which is the destruction of the planet. And, and that's the only place where we can be. 
So I really committed that I would be contributing to movement in some way for my whole life. And I feel now, you know, like for years, it was as a facilitator and that was my primary work. And I love, oh, I love that work. I love holding a group and seeing all the different ways that they are and finding some common ground and a path forward. But yeah, that's what got me started. And there was a clear way to apply my gifts in a, that, in a way that could impact the world. Adrian, I know that you spent some time working at the Ruckus Society. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your time there and the kinds of organizing that you're doing. Oh, yeah. That was a really exciting time of my life. I was really honored that they hired me, actually, because I just thought these are all the coolest people that I've ever met. And, you know, the Ruckus Society's mission is to increase the skill set that movement can bring to nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience. And I initially linked up with Ruckus because they needed some organizational development support. They'd hit some roadblocks in terms of being able to build their network. And they asked me to come in and help. And as I came in and kept coming and visiting with them, I got really moved by their mission and moved by what they were up to. And when they invited me to come be their director, I was like, cool, let's do this. And even though I wasn't like the action hero person, I was the facilitator person, but I was able to facilitate in such a way that the founding leadership, which had been very white and very male, was able to transition to a leadership that was much more, you know, women of color led, trans people, queer people led. And I'm really proud of the work that we did there. And a lot of really cool formations have come out of that, including the Blackout Collective, which has done a lot of the training on nonviolent civil disobedience for the Black Lives Matter movement around the country and, and for just Black uprisings around the world. So I'm really honored. I got to be there for five years. We collectivized about halfway through my time there. So I was in a shared directorship role. I never think anyone should be an individual director <laughs> again. You know, like I'm just like, <laughs> it's not actually healthy, safe, or wise if you can avoid it. Yeah, but that was that was my work there. In your work, you would have uh, come across so many different types of community organizing going around the states and elsewhere. And yeah. having uh, done some community organizing myself, you know, one of the, the things about it is it's one of the last free liberal arts educations left in the world in the sense you have to know a little bit about urban planning. It's great mm. to know arts and literature. You have to read history, a bunch of things. And uh, I'm wondering, there's a kind of intoxication with it as well, but also the flip side of that is a kind of burnout that happens as well, that's mm -hmm. endemic to, to social movements. And I'm wondering, as you were doing that work, uh, the way it can change mm -hmm. who you are because of the intensity of the work, the seriousness mm -hmm. of the work, but also the kind of Yeah, I mean, I think part of what happens, at least when, when I was very young coming into the work, I had a really strong sense that what I did really mattered and I had to take it very seriously. I had to know everything about every conflict and every, I had to have a position on all things that were happening in the world. And it took a few years for me to understand that I was thinking I was still thinking inside of the capitalist training I had, I had, you know, been socialized into, right? Like I have to constantly be able to grow and learn everything and lead everything and come up against the force of oppression with an equal force and as an individual. And it took a long time for me to understand that we're fighting systems. 
we're not fighting people, we're fighting systems. And so when you're fighting systems, especially systems you're embedded in, you cannot as an individual take that on and expect to have a huge impact. It has to be a community effort and you have to be in communities that are willing to try other systems out. So that's part of why, you know, when I ended up in an executive position, one of the first moves I made and was interested in making was how do we share this power? Because systemically, I don't want to perpetuate and exhaust myself trying to be a one woman show or one woman savior. And I tell young organizers and activists that all the time that it's like find a community where you feel that the load can be shared of the work that you're doing and find a community that's willing to actually be in practice of other systems in addition to whatever it is you're fighting for. Because I, I think it's, if you're in a hierarchical, top-down, oppressive, capitalist, patriarchal, white supremacist system, and you say you're fighting against all those things, that's the quickest way to burn yourself out. The contradictions, right, will split you from yourself. I think if you get into a community where you're able to be in a collective, be in a space where decisions and resources and time and energy is all shared and you know you, you can't do everything the goal is not perfection of the alternative it's experimentation and emergent strategy was really born for me out of that idea that we have to be practicing the new world while we're in the shell of the old not just talking about it and critiquing the shell we have to actually be in a practice so that we grow the new musculature for a different kind of system and uh, emergent strategy so i did have a chance to to read that it's a wonderful book Thank you. I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to, you know, what made you think about writing a book about this topic in particular, of course, being involved in community organizing so many different movements. Oftentimes there isn't even time to think or talk about broader strategy in a lot of ways. It's fighting the day in and day out, but it's so important to be thinking about the end game and ways of working and all of those kinds of things. But I'm wondering if you can sort of speak about where the project came from. There's kind of a, a couple of streams. So one is early in my life, I got to read the work of Octavia E. Butler. And um, if you ever see me, like the whole wall behind me is dedicated to her work. I'm always thinking of her. And actually as part of the Blaney Award, I'm getting to pull together a group of the Octavia E. Butler scholars to have a gathering together and do some reflection on, on the future from here. But I was reading her work and Octavia E. Butler's work was always brilliant to me because she was looking at the problems of the day and saying, what if it was different? What would it take to be different? What would leadership have to look like to be different? So I was always reading her work and inspired by that. And then I came across the ideas of emergence and complex sciences. And what astounded me was this idea that actually there's small fractal and interdependent nature of all things is actually the defining truth of our, our super system, like the whole earth and all that lives on it and the, the way the universe interacts and that the current situation we're in politically is actually the anomaly, right? Humans in some way are the anomaly. We are the ones who are not satisfied with the scale of our communities and the scale of our lives and are constantly trying to do something bigger and, and, and further outsized of that. So I started getting obsessed and looking at this. And then I was also being kind of nourished by what I was learning as a facilitator about what it looked like to have people who had been socialized to compete against each other, come into a space and find ways to work in deep collaboration. 
So all of that was swirling around my head in around 2010, 2012. I was thinking about it. I went on a sabbatical in 2012 and I was watching ants crawl up a wall and gather food and watching birds flock. And I just, it clicked for me that I was like, we are, we are nature, but we are forgetting to act as nature. We are forgetting to act as community, as communal animals, as communal species. And so it flowed from there. And the book is a a mixture of those things. Like the best I knew at the time around how to be with each other and what I think to be the fundamental elements of our species and how we are with each other, principles for how to be with each other. And a lot of it is like really start to pay attention to the natural world around you as a teacher, in addition to anything else and including yourself as a part of the natural world. And the biggest lesson of it is how do we get in a relationship with change that actually allows us to grow and to move intentionally towards a better way of being rather than feeling pummeled by change or as Octavia called it, being victims of change. How do we partner with change? She has this quote, all that you touch, you change. And all that you change changes you. The only lasting truth is change. And as an organizer, I always found that people were like, yeah, we want to change everybody, but very rarely focused on, we will also be changed in in everything that we touch and try to change. It will change us too. And I was like, okay, how do we build community around that idea that there's no benevolent missionary who comes and just changes one way? It's always a mutual experience. And, you know, right now we've got huge climate catastrophes. We've got a global pandemic. There's tons of economic crisis happening around the world. There's tons of, you know, Russia's attacking Ukraine. I mean, there's like all these major changes happening. And part of what I'm interested in is how do we harness the energy of change to move towards justice. Those are uh, wonderful words and how you talk about Octavia Butler's work as well is just really profound and beautiful in terms of the resonances it still has. I know that you worked uh, together with Walida Imarisha on on Octavia's uh, brood. I met Walida Imarisha once for about one minute because my friend Matt was working on a, good, uh, a book in Portland and he was meeting with her. And so I said hello to her and I took a photo, but we haven't met in a proper way. <laughs> so I know about the work. I heard about it from her, but wondering if you can speak about that project. Yeah. So Walida Imarish and I connected in 2010 and we were both, you know, thinking about Octavia Butler, thinking about science fiction as a place for ideating and understanding the future. And she had come up with this terminology for it called visionary fiction. Like how do we write stories that inside the story flip the constructs that we take to be normal. And we'd actually not met in person when we decided to do an anthology together. We had only emailed each other back and forth (laughs) and been like, I see what you're up to. I think it's really cool. You know, like, let's do this. So we ended up putting together this collection called Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction from Social Justice Movements. And it's all these short stories from people who are on the front lines of creating change in the world. And we were interested in that because it's like, we feel all organizing is science fictional behavior. You're actually trying to shape the future and try to predict and understand what the possibilities of the future are. And we got very, very exciting stories back from people, visionary work that touched on climate and immigration and boundaries and mental well-being and all of it. 
And so we put that out in 2015 and then we toured it for about a year doing all these visionary fiction writing workshops. And it was really, you know, we also had this workshop on direct action and science fiction where we would look at science fictional classics, you know, because people don't even know that they love science fiction, but it's like, you watch Star Wars, you're in the Marvel universe, you you actually love all this stuff. So we, we would take these classic works that people love and we would say, who is the person in this who's experiencing oppression? And what kind of organizing would it take for that to change? And it was always exciting. You know, people would be in the Lord of the Rings, like, okay, the orcs, like, how do we organize the orcs? You know, like, what does it look like? But we did all this touring with that to help people learn that what we're fundamentally trying to do is write a new story together. And one of the things we practice is collaborative science fictional writing. So ideating the setting and the story and the politics and the assumptions, and even sometimes the characters, ideating all of that together, and then taking turns writing and sharing those stories with each other. And that process can bring medicine to communities, the medicine of imagination, the medicine of something else being possible. Fascinating, fascinating project. Now, more recently, uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2019, you you had a, a book come out called Pleasure Activism. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about that project. Oh, yeah. Pleasure Activism was a blast to write and a blast to work on. As I was working on emergent strategy, something that kept coming back to me was this essay from Audre Lorde called The Uses of the Erotic as Power. And in it, she talks about the erotic force of aliveness that is in each of us and how all these different things can awaken it from like making love to your partner, to writing a poem, to painting a fence, to something else. That it's like, there's something about that erotic aliveness being fully awakened and fully present that makes it impossible to settle for self-negation. And I found that as a radical organizing and liberation tool, it made the most sense to me that those times when I felt the most alive had often been in movement spaces for me. And that aliveness, that sense that I can be my whole self and this community is interested in my whole self, my full aliveness, as opposed to what oppression does, which is say, you can come here as long as you're willing to be you know, in the U.S., three-fifths of a person if you're a Black person, or as long as you're willing to earn 70 cents on the dollar if you're a woman, or as long as you're willing to, you know, not have a vote or whatever else, you know, some way that you subjugate yourself. Instead, this idea of like, what does it look like to claim my whole self and have that be not just accepted, but celebrated. Um, So I kept reading and listening. There's an audio recording of her reading this essay, which I highly recommend you go listen to and immersing myself in it and then thinking about how that related to social justice. And in social justice, so often we are working ourselves to the bone, burning ourselves out, exhausted. And a lot of the work is around a no, right? Please stop gentrifying our communities. Please stop shooting us. Please stop locking us up. Please stop deporting our our community. Please stop, you know? And there's so much no in it, but the question I was in is like, what is the no making way for? And the no should make way for the yes, for what we want and what we want to be, what we want to practice and experience. So a lot of pleasure activism is about how do we make justice and liberation the most pleasurable experiences that we can have rather than, you know, these dregs, you know, it's like, I don't want to be there. I don't want to do this. This is awkward and uncomfortable. So there's a lot in the book about sex and about drugs, also about fashion, laughter and surviving cancer, 
you know, or dying from cancer, but still being able to find pleasure in that experience. Um, what does it look like to experience pleasure as you're aging? So I wanted to explore it, take a snapshot of, of what the options were. I wrote a lot of it in the initial waves of the Me Too movement. So a lot of the sexual content is really like, how do we reclaim our erotic aliveness and our sexual potential from the realm of patriarchy? What does it look like to build a culture of sensual consent? What does it look like to shift the realm of fantasy so that we actually are fantasizing about and longing for ourselves rather than this, you know, skinny white norm that we're given this the most desirable thing. So that's what pleasure activism is about. I really, I've been blown away by the response to it, how much people need it. And at a very basic level, how much people need to be told that there's nothing wrong with them, there's nothing to fix and that they deserve to feel good. And I think that's one of the longest legacies of being the victim of oppression is that you're made to feel that you don't deserve to feel good, that that's the realm of the privileged. And that's a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, every single body was created by the same divine mechanisms and every single life deserves to have that same miraculous potential. So it's, it's a sacred book to me. It seems like there's so much repressed inside of social movements that what you're talking about maybe taps into that and opens up the space that people are maybe are thinking about and not articulating yeah. themselves or there isn't space within movements for. And one of the things that I have often said is like movements are always a microcosm of the society that they're a part of. So if you're living inside of a repressive regime, a repressive society, then the movement will also have a repressive content unless it intentionally tries to shift that. And I think part of what I'm saying with all of my texts is we need to be intentionally creating a different culture inside of movement that reflects the world we want rather than the one that we were socialized by. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit when I think about your work in the way that you call for the need for a kind of uh, affirmative approach in terms of movements, saying uh, what they want rather than simply being uh, opposed to things, although that's often the context in which uh, social movements emerge and organize around, but there is an affirmative space. And and also when I think about your work, there's a, a through line for me, which has to do with how do we maintain solidarity in the context of difference? Mm-hmm. and trying to articulate a, a space where this can be worked through in a generous and, and gentle way. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can sort of speak to what solidarity means to you and how it can be held inside of social movements. There's so many important things that we're trying to get through. People have different starting points in movements, yeah. uh, the issues of class and other aspects, and, and wondering um, how you think these things through today. I mean, I think that solidarity, one of the most important parts of it is that it's it's the antithesis of charity, the antithesis of doing something for someone else that doesn't also impact or benefit you. To me, there's, you know, and I think of charity in that sense of I will give to you in a way to assuage my guilt for creating oppressive conditions, you know, um, and I, I think a lot of people, even with really good intentions, at least begin their organizing work that way. Let me help whoever the poor people are, these victims. Solidarity flips that on its head. And it's like, actually, 
any act that we take to liberate another, we're also liberating ourselves. We're also bringing ourselves back into the right relationship with our spirit, with our humanity, with justice, with, with what we're supposed to be here to do. And I get a lot of people who will be like, you know, I want to join this movement or that movement. And I always say, go back to your own root system. Like if you're trying to figure out what movement to be a part of and where to throw your work in and like always go back to your own root system and both be able to see the places where you are oppressed and the places where you have privilege. And I really think that everyone has some elements of both, you know, it may not seem that way. It may take some support and some, some help to figure it out, but go back to that root system. The place where you have privilege is one of the places where you can do the most work in your own lifetime. And that means, you know, for men being able to work on patriarchy directly for women, um, especially white women, being able to work on issues of racism, being able to work on issues of power and not just emulating patriarchy, but actually being able to create a, a relationship to power that is just for people who, you know, have been in this country a long time in the U.S. as citizens. It's really thinking, how can I be in relationship with those who are struggling to find home, those who are struggling to find safety? I always, I think that that helps you always have a direct relationship because then you know it's not just the organizing you do, but also the choices you're making with your life that puts you in a relationship of solidarity. And, you know, solidarity can look all kinds of ways. Sometimes it's literally just saying, I'll take the lead from someone else who is living inside these circumstances. I stand with Palestine in a very strong way, and I've never been to Palestine. Um, I don't have any Palestinian lineage to my knowledge, but I take the leadership of people who are on the ground there who tell me what they're going through, what they're experiencing and what the dynamics are and how similar they are to the U.S. in terms of that history, that legacy of colonization in the name of freedom. I listen to that and I take that guidance. You know, I'm like, okay, there's something unjust happening there. The Israeli state is up to some unjust things. What does that mean? How can I be in alignment with justice in that circumstance? And again, then where does dialogue, where does, what are the radical transformative conversations and experiences that can happen that can actually result in something different, not just a peaceful coexistence while harm still happens over to the side, right? But an actual just coexistence. I think about that in the US, like I live now in the South, but I live in a country where my own people have been killed, so many of them killed by the police. So that issue directly impacts me. And how can I be both in solidarity with those who are experiencing that injustice? Well, one of the things I'm doing is building intentional relationship with those who are currently incarcerated, right? Their voices are often not heard, not taken seriously. They're dismissed as criminal in some way. But what I'm learning from being in solidarity with them is, there's a lot of great teaching happening from these people who are like, we've been persecuted, we've been misjudged, or we've been lied on, and we have found ways to build community with each other. And I want to be in solidarity with that. I always want to be in solidarity with those who are finding ways to return, I think, to what our fundamental nature is, which is to be together in community. I think that's what we're, that's how we're supposed to be, even for you know, a kind of curmudgeonly writer like myself. I can't survive without the community around me. You know, on the horizon, it's been going on for a long time. It's not like it just emerged, but the yeah. authoritarian populism wave, which we also see in, in Canada in the form of 
truckers protests and that type of thing. But when yeah. you see the reemergence of Trump and others, the suturing of the Republican Party to the far right and the mainstreaming of uh, authoritarianism, uh, essentially anti-democratic and also, you know, a listless response oftentimes from the Democratic Party itself. How do you maintain a sense of joy and a radical outside to what's on the horizon and what's playing out on the ground in terms of, you know, how should social movements and progressive people think through these things in a proper and serious way, and at the same time, sustain a kind of energy and joy around the work that we can uh, imagine a world outside of these forces that are trying to force themselves onto the agenda. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm always thinking about is how to make a just future more compelling. And this is one of the things that emergent strategy and pleasure activism really opened up for me. Cause I'm like, Oh, like if we're running around and our message to people is always one of dour crisis, it's going to be hard to make an invitation to people who are being courted by the sort of sweet sugary taste of capitalism. Right. So I think about that often that like, our legitimate authentic joy is actually one of the greatest weapons we have in the fight for a just future. Because what happens when you're living inside of that pleasure and that joy is that you have a compelling life that people are drawn towards, that people are curious about. I have been amazed how many more people ask me about justice since pleasure activism came out than had done before when I was very, very seriously talking about the climate, you know, and I'm able to still talk about the climate, but I'm able to talk about it from a perspective of, of what are the pleasures of earth? What is the joy of being of this planet, you know, and the beauty that I can see in my imagination for what it would look like when we had a, a relationship with this planet that was not a destructive one in the face of fascism, particularly we have to remember that what we're offering to people is ultimately more powerful and more beautiful. And whenever I see that happening, that uprising, that, you know, I think of it as like that incredible backlash towards justice. I know that our work is successful. I know that our resistance has been successful and that gives me joy, right? That I'm like, oh, wow. Like y'all are so challenged by the work that we're doing, that you are trying to bend heaven and earth and contorting every aspect of your own lives and justice in order to stop us. And you only hurt yourself, you know? And meanwhile, we keep getting more free and we keep getting more practice ground and we keep learning. And I'm, I'm really interested in the idea that we're constantly learning. I'll also say that I'm really interested in the idea that we don't actually know exactly what this just future is going to look like because it needs to be multiple imaginations that feed it. Part of how we ended up in the circumstance we're in now is that totalitarian, authoritarian worldview where one person, one idea is supposed to rule everyone else. But that's actually not how our species is wired. We are a biodiverse species in a biodiverse world. However many of us are in a room, there's that many experiences, there's that many worldviews. So it's like part of what we're doing on the other side and the pleasure side is saying, delight in the distinction of who you are and bring that fully to bear in this community, in this organizing, in this work. The more difference that we're able to harness into a, into a solidarity, the more powerful we will be. And I think history has shown that, that some of the most incredible victories that we've had have come from really unlikely alliances. And I think that will continue to be the case. 
Um, I think that's part of what we're what we're looking at right now is, you know, how do we build an authentic solidarity between Black liberation struggles, which long for land, and Indigenous struggles, which long for sovereignty, and immigration struggles, which long for safety. Right? How do we? How do we? That that's not a resolved solidarity. Right? You have to sit and think and work and, and practice that. And I'm really excited to be of the of the number practicing those things because capitalism and, and these sort of unjust systems, I think it's inevitable that they fall. They're top heavy, you know, top heavy things topple. And so I think the question, there's a there was a Detroit activist named General Baker. And one of the questions he posed to us uh, years ago was, you know, everybody's always talking about how do we get the people to show up and we need to be asking ourselves, what are we going to do when they get here? And I think about that often of like, how are we practicing that new world? So that when people arrive, we're like, Hey, here's how to be in generative conflict. And here's how to feel your feelings in a responsible way that doesn't have negative impact on others. Here's how to form relationships of justice and liberation. Here's how you can love each other. Here's how we're learning to process and make decisions together in a consensus way. Like, like let's be in the practice of things that will actually help us survive. Because I also think about the fact that climate change at this point, pretty severe climate change is already unfolding and more severe climate change is inevitable. And so we want to be ready. You know, I'm always thinking about that. I'm like, are we ready? Because <laughs> we need to be ready. Everything's, everything's going to continue to become more chaotic, but chaos is an opportunity if we're ready. Uh, Adrian, is there uh, anything that you'd like to add? I feel very satisfied by this conversation, actually. Thank you for being a great interviewer. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful to be in conversation uh, with you, and congratulations on the award. I'm going to be joining that this afternoon as well. Thank you. And uh, just thank you so much for, for joining us on Below the Radar. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Adrian Marie Brown. Head down to the show notes to view Adrian's talk with SFU Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue, titled Public Reading and Dialogue on Octavia Butler and the Future. You can also find additional resources related to today's topics in the show notes as well. Thanks for listening and tune in on Tuesdays for more Below the Radar. Below the Radar.